Welcome to the Hirshhorn. This is our first Friday gallery talk on uh, the Blinky Palermo retrospective. And um, today we have Joshua Shannon here to talk about Blinky. Um, he is an assistant professor of contemporary art history and theory at University of Maryland College Park. Um, and prior to Maryland, he's also taught in Berlin at the University of Michigan and at the San Francisco Art Institute. And um, his research and teaching interests include photography, art in the city, landscape art, and uh, modern and contemporary realism. Um, he earned his PhD at University of California, Berkeley. Um, and his uh, first book, called The Disappearance of Objects, New York Art, and the Rise of the Postmodern City, um, was a finalist at the, for the Phillips Collection's Book Prize. And he's working on a new book um, about the artistic use of photography around 1968 and later. Um, he's also a founding board member of the Society of Contemporary Art Historians, um, which is part of the College Art Association and a co-founder of the Contemporary Art Think Tank. So I'll let him take it from here. Thanks so much, Jenny. Uh, hi, I'm very excited to talk to you about Blinky Palermo, although I should admit up front that I'm not a specialist on Blinky Palermo's work, uh, but I was really pleased to be invited to come and do this talk because it seemed to me a really exciting opportunity to think about Palermo in relationship to some things that really have mattered a lot to my own work, um, which has primarily been on American art in the 60s and now is increasingly also on German art in the same period, 60s and 70s. And I'm doing some work now on Gerhard Richter, who was a very close friend of Palermo's and collaborated with Palermo on several occasions, some of which are kind of loosely documented here. Um, but I, so what I'm going to do, and in a way I hope this is in fact better than, in some sense, than having someone talk to you who knows a great deal about Palermo, because what I'm going to do, rather than give you some kind of stable or solid meanings for the works in the exhibition, is to just give you a couple of different ways of thinking or tools for looking at the work in the show. Um, I'm, ho I'm hoping that'll be especially useful to you because Palermo's a character whom uh, we don't know a lot about in the United States. I'm not the only one who doesn't know a lot about Palermo. Uh, he hasn't, this is his first retrospective in the US. And although he was deeply influenced by American art, he knew about American art very early. Uh, around 1966, he became very familiar quite quickly with uh, developments that were happening just at that moment in American minimalism and was uh, dialectically really engaged with American painting and sculpture from that moment forward, even before. Uh, so as sort of an American art-going audience, I think we have some tools sort of immediately at our disposal for looking, interestingly, at Palermo. But the works are difficult to make sense of, um, just because you know, they're kind of late modernist works and they, those kinds of works tend to be difficult to make sense of, they're abstract works, um, but also because we don't really know the context, um, or many of us don't know that context especially intimately. Uh, so I'm hoping what I can do is give you a couple of ways of looking that will uh, make the obdurate quality or the weirdness or the hardness of the work a little more rewarding. Can I just ask first, uh, how many of you have had a chance to get a good look at the show already? Okay, it's about half of you. So, um, okay, well that just informs a little bit. I'll try to give some clues to those of you who haven't seen the show yet, and hopefully this will be a spur for a kind of looking, both for those of you who haven't seen the show and those who have. Um, chronologically, the show runs in the opposite direction from the one you just walked in. 
And we're standing in a room, roughly speaking, we're standing in a room of paintings all made in 1970. The works here are mostly earlier, uh, although not all of them. Uh, and in some sense, this room is a cogitation on what happens before and is a kind of turning point to what happens in the next two galleries. So I'm just... Well, we, you can't get a good enough view of what's there, but you'll see when you see that show, or this part of the show, that in the 60s, uh, Palermo is really interested in making these strange object-like paintings, paintings that emphasize their own shape. They emphasize the fact that they are things. They have weird shapes. They have an awkward, ungainly appearance that makes you, as a viewer, confront and recognize the fact that they are not so much pictures in the traditional sense, even pictures in the traditional abstract sense, but rather these kind of strange, emphatic insistences on their own thingness. The painting right behind you, I think, is a good, kind of very tamped down example of that. By having not only an unusual shape, but an irregular one, it has the history of seeming like a painting, of course. I mean, and it is, in a narrow sense, a painting. This is paint on canvas. But it, because of this sort of strange, baggy form and the awkwardness of the shape uh, trying to make the canvas fit the form, you get this object that seems not to be a picture, doesn't look into some other world, even a contemplative one, but instead kind of returns you to the painting as this object in space. And Palermo was far from the only artist in this period who's interested in that insistence on the, painting, the painting's own materiality. There was a very broad interest in Germany, in West Germany, as in the United States, uh, starting from the 40s into this period, in rejecting the idea that a picture should be a window into some other space and a kind of insistence that if a picture is going to be authentic and legitimate, it has to insist that about its, its own real space. I wanted to start in this gallery then, because I think this painting in the corner and this one behind me, and I'm calling them paintings, but of course that's a little loose, are a kind of turning point in that set of developments or, or interests for Palermo. In this painting, you see, of course, that the reduced size and total monochromatic gray of the work seems, again, to be a kind of intensive object-like insistence on the factuality of the painting rather than any pictorial aspect. You can't look into any kind of imaginative depth, for sure. The, this painting refuses it. But what I love about this work is that by doubling it, he's already turned that object insistence into an aestheticization of the space that you stand in. And this ends up, not just for Palermo, but for other artists in the period, being one of the interesting consequences of this object orientation. That if you make the painting into something you can't really look into, but just look at, it turns your attention into uh, awareness of the gallery space and this spatializes the aesthetic experience. For most of the history of modernism, the idea was you would walk up to the painting and it would be absorptive and it would sort of transport you out of the gallery space, right? The gallery is the thing to be forgotten. There's the neutral background. And here, this really turns that around 
and forces your attention back to the space of the gallery as uh, ordinary space, everyday space, but also space that this work aestheticizes and transforms for you. And then I think this work makes a lot more sense if you see it as not so much a painting in the sense of the Mondrian that it seems to be quoting, for example, but instead as an activation, and Palermo specifically instructed that it be installed in this way. We have photographs of it looking in this way. Uh, an activation of the gallery space, this kind of um, spatialization of the aesthetic realm outside of the object and into the space of the gallery. And that spatialization, that turning away from the object into ordinary space, is one of the things that I think you can see developing in the earlier work and that continues in the later work as well. Now I want to take you to two other spots because um, it's not a very long time we have. It's just uh, 20 minutes still. Um, one to look first in this room of the, at the Stoffbilder and then uh, in the big room in the back that has the late major work of Palermo's called To the People of New York City. But before I do that, because we'll talk about slightly different concerns or ways of thinking about the work there. Let me just stop here and see if people um, have questions or things they want to add. Yeah. yeah. Did he intend for these paintings to be almost alone on the walls in which they were displayed? Yeah, the um, photographs we have of early installations mimic these. Of course, the spaces were generally smaller because it, the West German gallery spaces in the 60s and early 70s tended to be fairly modest. Uh, but it's very much, the installation here is quite true to the way they were installed early on. This is quite a complicated shadow. Yeah. Um, which I find interesting. Yeah. Did you think about that, or was this Um, I have no idea whether he thought about it. I'm really glad you said it. I only noticed it just now while I was standing here waiting for you. I hadn't noticed it before. Um, it does seem to me absolutely an extension. I mean, I sort of loved it when I saw it because it seems to me to be precisely the thing that I'm hoping you can kind of see this work doing, which is that it sort of turns your attention away from them. It's sort of so intensely about the object that it ends up turning your attention away from the object and into the space. And I think the doubling calls attention to the shadow. I think it would be much harder to even see or notice the shadow if you didn't have, I mean, it's, it's nicely, I think that light is really nicely installed because it creates this beautiful, uh, very nearly symmetrical uh, set of patterns that then spills into the space of the gallery and kind of activates that space. Um, whether he thought about it, I just don't know. I can say that there's, you know, he was quite close with Richter, as I said, in this period, there's one Richter painting on view in the museum right now. Um, the Hirschhorn owns three of them, but there's one from the period that is on view. Uh, and it's from the series of Richter's paintings that he called the Schattenbilder, the, the shadow pictures, which is, uh, well, you'll see it, it's by the elevator, but it's this um, wonderful kind of play between a totally flat surface and then a little bit of an illusion of a shadow into space. So whether Palermo would have had some kind of conversations with Richter about shadows or even just been thinking about shadows because of seeing 
that painting, which is two years earlier, I, I can't say for sure. Okay, let's go um, into the next room, uh, most of the way to the other wall and on the left side. So you see immediately that most of the pictures in this room uh, are part of a series. They weren't painted all at one time. The series actually carried on for several years, um, including actually some early paintings that were destroyed. This one here is the one I wanted to kind of call your attention most closely to, is from 1968. A few of the others in the room are also from that heavily politicized year. And I just wanted to talk here, and this is what I'll, I'll just pick up on a bit, and our last, next and last stop in the next room, about another device. I've talked a little bit about this object orientation and it's spilling into the gallery space. But a second device or way of thinking that might be helpful for looking not just at this work, but at Palermo's work as a whole. And that is, it seems to me that this work typifies a, a really weird and exciting but hard to figure out tension, or dialectic, if you will, in Palermo's work. And that is specifically a kind of tension between, on the one hand, what seems like a really intense anti-expressive move, and on the other hand, nevertheless, a kind of lyrical indulgence and pleasure in expression at the same time. I say that because it seems to me that these pictures are above all a reference to Rothko. How many of you know Rothko's painting a little bit? Mark Rothko is a very important American abstract expressionist painter whom Palermo knew and respected. When Palermo came to the United States in the 70s, he came a few times but lived in New York for three years between 1973 and 76 after this period. He was careful to go to the Rothko Chapel in Houston uh, and see the paintings and tried to make sure that he was there under ideal lighting conditions. So Rothko, we know, is an artist who's very important to Palermo. And Rothko's signature paintings have something like this format, very often basically three horizontal forms. But Rothko's paintings, of course, are oil on canvas. And what makes people love Rothko, almost always, is their very subtle, evocative, shifting play with color, the way in which the forms seem to breathe. There's a little bit of kind of funny illusionistic depth, and you can never really tell how deep that illusionistic depth is. So they're a very contemplative, muted, expressive set of paintings. And in that sense, they characterize a really important aspect of American abstract expressionist painting of the 40s and 50s. Here in 1968, you have what, to my eyes, looks at first blush like a rejection of Rothko. It takes the form, roughly speaking, of Rothko's paintings, but instead of the hand of the painter carefully and evocatively producing subtle expressive effects, you have a work of art that's literally made by using a sewing machine to stitch together three bits of cotton fabric that he purchased in a department store. It seems at first as if he's using ready-made materials, kind of ordinary commercial materials, as a rejection of Rothko and company, as too much kind of humanistic, affective uh, navel-gazing, uh, which many artists in this period, of course, were doing, right? S specifically rejecting expression, 
for a, a much cleaner, uh, disaffected kind of work. But what makes this so wonderful, in my view, is that that characterization of it is far too simple. Because part of what you have here is this, in fact, in the end, quite Rothko-like effect of a question, first of all, of whether you have two colors here or three. Uh, these seem to have come from the same bolt, but the seam is noticeable enough and discolored enough to dislodge that certainty. And these two colors are also close enough that you end up feeling a kind of unresolved notion about the color. If you extrapolate from that to the other pictures in the gallery, I think you begin to see, and this one at the end looks very much like late Rothko. Those of you who know the late Rothko paintings, or if you saw uh, Harry Cooper's wonderful Rothko show this winter in the um, tower at the National Gallery, you saw many of the late dark paintings. It's very much like Rothko, and, in, and it turns out, despite having not been made by hand, to still produce the uh, effective results, to my eye at least, of those um, wonderfully subtle paintings. One thing I would encourage you to do is just as you look at these Stoffbilder, as they're called, um, it's sometimes translated as cotton paintings. A more literal translation would be just material paintings. Um, is to try to decide which ones you think, if there's a kind of dialectic or tension between the anti-expressive and the expressive, whether you think some of them are more expressive or less. I mean, to my eye, uh, these other three-banded ones are the, the sort of the coldest and the poppiest of them. They're the ones that seem most obviously to kind of have the colors of, of commercial activity, and they look uh, very obviously that they've been made with the help of a machine. And that seems to me somewhat less the case in the other pictures. But every one of them has its own weird flipping back and forth between a refusal of expression and an indulgence. Okay, I want to pick up on that in the next room, but again, let's, let me stop for a second and see if other people want to ask questions or say something here first. Oh, you mean that the, that the gallery installed them here? Well, I can't speak on behalf of the Hirshhorn. Perhaps Jenny can. But they, there are wall panels, but they're... Where is the wall panel in this room? Um, they are. And, okay, I see. It's right there. So you have them, but you have to kind of index them. No, I haven't. Yeah. It's lovely, I think. It's really nice, in my view, to, get, to invite you to have a chance to really look before you do that thing of sort of, what am I looking at? Yeah. Yes, but then when you look at the description and it says, untitled, 1967. Right. You still don't get very much. You get a date and you get some materials, you know, which is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, a couple of things. Um, it's not a very large body of work. Uh, he died very young. He died in 1977. Um, I, I can say a little bit. I was going to tell you a little about his biography, and I, I forgot. And I'll, let me just do that quickly in a second. 
I think that's one reason. Um, in general, the American reception of German art has been very slow. Uh, I think the chief reason for that is that Americans have tended to be so enthusiastic about American art after 1945 that the American account of art after 1945 is all about New York and sort of secondarily about LA. And there's this vague idea that maybe there are people elsewhere in the world who are doing interesting things. That's changing a lot really quickly, and this show I think is part of that. But Americans just haven't been open to it. They don't read German. They know about the context. Um, Gerhard Richter is a very stark exception to the rule. And it's partly because Richter gained some uh, fame and notoriety in the United States quite early and showed quite frequently in the US. But others uh, didn't. And the German art scene, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, the history of the German art scene, kind of especially along the Rhine, in Dusseldorf and Cologne, between 1965 and 1989, it's just an unbelievably rich and weird story. And one of the things that's happening in that place in that time is lots of American artists who don't get shows in the United States are showing over there too. But I think Americans just haven't paid attention is really the real reason. But I think you'll see 15 years from now, um, this is going to be very different. And not just because of German art, of course. Yeah. Isn't it possible too that Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's always a hindrance. People like to have quotations to put together with their objects. Um, there are two names before the uh, adopted name. Tomorrow. Yeah, Can you, uh, sure. One is mentioned here in the um, uh, exhibit, the uh, wood Yeah, Peter Heisterkamp. And the other one is Peter Schwarze in, in this one. So yeah. Sure. Um, and in fact, he had uh, a third name, or it was presumed that he would have had a third name before he had the name Schwarze, because he was, he was born in or either right around Leipzig in 1943. And um, there was some, th the details of this I don't know. I don't know if other Palermo, if Palermo scholars do, but um, he didn't take his father's name. He took his mother's name. But initially, he had his father's name. Then he had his mother's name. Much later, it turned out that the person who he thought was his father wasn't his father, in fact. So there was another name that he could have used, which he never did. But he took his mother's name. But he, very quickly, I mean, when he was still an infant, he was adopted by this family, Heisterkamp. So he, all his life, identified as a, and a new, I mean, people who knew him personally knew him as Peter Heisterkamp. In um, 1964, he began study, I think he started slightly earlier, 63, he began study at the Kunstakademie Dusseldorf. And in 64, he began studying famously with Joseph Beuys, this strange kind of shamanistic performance conceptual artist who was the great professor at the, at the Kunstakademie and the weird kind of opposite force from Bernd and Hille Becher, who were the photographers working there. And uh, while he was studying with um, boys, another student in the class uh, said that he looked like the American gangster and boxing promoter, Linky Palermo. It was the name of a living person. He was actually Sonny Liston's manager. And um, so he took the name Linky Palermo, which was obviously kind of a little bit of a kind of gangster, cool move, but it was also an Americanization. But ostensibly, it actually hung on the fact that he looked like him. With all this mysterious stuff around him, it's amazing that the gallery didn't print a picture. Is there none available? Or there are some pictures of him. Um, not a lot. Um, there are some pictures. There are some nice ones in the exhibition catalog. 
So we're very close to out of time. So let's move um, uh, into the next room, and I'll just say one last set of things. So this is a really lovely installation. Um, what you're looking at in this room is one work. It's called To the People of New York City. Uh, Palermo painted it in 1977, after or 76, excuse me, after returning from the U.S. He lived in New York from 73 to 76, as I said earlier. And what you see is uh, a work of 40 panels, ostensibly 40 panels. I counted in here the other day, and I counted 39. So I don't know if there's one work that looks like it's one panel that's actually two, or I'm not sure. Um, all of them are uh, acrylic on aluminum. And you'll see immediately that what he's done is to use this generative structure of three colors. Uh, not quite the primaries. It's red, yellow, and black rather than blue. Although there is the way, a way in which the work has this kind of rhetoric of being produced by the primary colors. And the main thing I want to point out to you about this work is it seems to me that it's a really nice further articulation of the tension that I tried to draw out a bit from the Stoffbilder, which is to say that on the one hand, one might even say kind of at first, it seems that these works have the kind of cold, calculated, systematic flavor of American conceptual art. So that is to say, um, like the Saul Witt drawing that's very wonderfully here in, in the sculpture hall, that it's produced by a kind of system. And you'll see, I wanted you to you know, consider in particular this group of four. Uh, there's a way in which you have, in any one of these, you have a kind of uh, iteration of the uh, various possibilities of combination of these three colors. Uh, there are basically two forms, right? The big square and then the lines. The two lines are always the same color, and the square is always a different color from them. And there's a way in which the logic of the painting sort of produces itself like a machine from that basic set of principles. At the same time, uh, Palermo doesn't seem quite comfortable with or doesn't quite want to refuse the idea of a kind of expressive aesthetic delight. I mean, just visually, the paintings have this incredible uh, optical intensity, of course, especially when you stand close to them because of the high key of the colors. It produces what seems to me a bit like a, a dance effect. Uh, in, there's an incredible... It's very hard to characterize what the flavor is, I think, but there's an incredible sense that there's some kind of intense expression. Expression of what? It's really, basically, for me, impossible to say. Uh, but feeling, for sure. And that's especially, uh, I hope you'll have a chance to just kind of come up close to a group of three or four, of, especially these little ones, which have this wonderful kind of almost palpable delight. You really want to grab them because they're this wonderful little notebook shape. And I think he wants you to have this intense kind of aesthetic pleasure in this thing that at the same time seems to refuse the history of the aesthetic or the, the expressive. The other thing that runs through these works and that kind of complicates their coldness is all of their elaborate referentiality. I mean, first of all, there's the title to the people of New York City, this place that he's just left. It's the Bicentennial, 1976. 
Um, he uses colors that seem to me to be the commercial colors of the 1970s, maybe particularly of sort of street advertising in New York in the 1970s, yellow, red, and black. Uh, they are also, not coincidentally, as um, everyone, to my knowledge, who's written about these has pointed out, the colors of the German flag. Uh, so while he's making it in Germany about the United States, they, it uses the colors of German identity. Uh, and the works end up, therefore, having this kind of elaborate set of um, ways that they sort of point to things. The other thing that, to me, they immediately point to is, again, Mondrian, the, the colors of specifically late Mondrian in New York, Broadway Boogie Woogie, which isn't exactly this palette. It's, it's very prominently red, yellow, and dark blue, and lots of white. Um, but the, the form of these rectangles with, framed with lines is drawn straight out of Mondrian's homage to New York City as well. What I hope that does, together with what I've said in the other room, is just to give you a way of looking and kind of seeing contradictory things within the pictures that allows you to have your own relationship to paintings, both the ones we've talked about and the others in the show. The last thing I'd want to do is just um, encourage you above all, of course, to see the whole show, but not to miss this really wonderful uh, installation that's pulled out slightly into the sculpture hall, not right here, but several rooms back, of a limited edition book that uh, Palermo produced with the Gallery René Bloch in Berlin in 1969, in which uh, he provided a stencil and a tube of blue paint. And the instructions were that you could use the stencil and the paint yourself to make your own version of Palermo's signature blue triangle, which you'll see in the drawings, over any door that you would like to. It seems Part of why I love that work is that it seems to me to encapsulate or to build on both of the two things I've tried to draw out, this aesthetic, anti-aesthetic, or expressive, anti-expressive quality, and this insistence on the space that you're actually in uh, at the same time. I think it's an incredibly witty and unusual and delightful work. And uh, I'm happy to answer questions about that or about anything else. But since it's already slightly past one, I'll, I'll stop here.